it has this place in the genre where it's very self-aware. Yeah, it's very much sort of leaning against the fourth wall the whole time. Yeah. It, like, not breaking it, but you know that they know it's there. Hello, and welcome to Unramblings, a podcast about stories and storytelling. I'm Faye Fix. And I'm Charlene. This week we're going to be talking about Knives Out, yet another one that we're hot off the presses with, just as it's come out. A year and a half ago. <laughs> the movie came out around Thanksgiving in like 2019, and I remember at the time being like, oh, I should see that, and then like six months later, having a vague opportunity, but being like, well, it's kind of a holiday movie. I don't know why I thought it was. I think it's just because I knew it was coming out on Thanksgiving. Yeah. It wasn't until like a year and a half later someone was like, no, 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 it's it's very timeless. You could watch it anytime. It has nothing to do with the holidays. For anyone who's not familiar with the basic concept, it's very much a murder mystery playing off the idea of it being a murder mystery. So when I saw the trailers for this one, it was very much a, oh, I have to go and see that. And then I didn't because if you've listened to the podcast before, you know that I have quite a fondness for old crime fiction and Agatha Christie and Raymond Chandler and all this stuff and it's a lot of the stuff that it plays off of so it was a big draw for me and for you I wanted to see it I don't know it had Chris Evans in it you really wanted to see it and I did think it sounded fun like it seemed very much like it was going for a sort of clue film thing which it definitely is Mm. and I did enjoy the clue film so I was up for it but it would just you know you were working retail and yeah. work and I was job hunting and then I was starting a new job and then there was a pandemic and it was just like a whole thing and we kind of forgot about it for a while. Anyway. Now I don't have to worry about Black Friday. It's true. And we can watch movies when we want to. It's true. And give a take. Okay, so we will obviously be spoiling the content of Knives Out. If we have any other spoiler or content warnings, we will drop those in right about here. Hello. I don't believe that we really have any spoiler warnings this time. We just sort of talk about a lot of allusions to the detective fiction and the mystery genre. We don't really have much in the way of content warnings either. Just due to the plot of the film, there are some mentions of suicide and murder. So if you're sensitive to that, be advised. But that's it. Okay, back to the past. Welcome back. And now Charlotte will give a quick plot summary. So Knives Out is a film about... A sort of classic murder mystery where, you know, an older, well-off guy is maybe murdered, maybe killed himself, and there's, you know, an independent, mysterious private detective who's kind of interviewing everybody who is part of the family and part of the staff and everything to kind of find out what happened in the days preceding his death to try and figure out if it was a suicide or a murder, and if so, if it was a murder who killed him. For a large part of the film, it seems as though his nurse, Marta, accidentally killed him and then he kind of committed suicide sort of to keep her from getting in trouble and he had left all of his wealth and everything to her because his family are kind of jerks. And uh, then there's sort of a twist where you find out that actually his grandson, who had been cut out of the will had actually set it up so that Marta would kill him and then not be able to claim said inheritance because she would have been the one who killed him. And then he would have been able to get his inheritance. And so the whole thing is sort of playing off of a lot of classic murder mystery tropes from film and books. 
Yeah, which I think is a great place to start with this. There's quite a lot going on in this movie. It's one of those things where there's so many little nods that there could be a complete dissection, and I'm sure there has been. We're going to talk about the story and the storytelling, though, because that's what we do. So we've sort of mentioned a couple of times it has this place in the genre where it's very self-aware. Yeah, it's very much sort of leaning against the fourth wall the whole time. Yeah. It, like, not breaking it, but you know that they know it's there. Yeah. There's never, like, a direct moment that actually breaks it, but it does definitely... I'm trying to think if there's an actual moment where it feels like they are almost looking at you. There are some places where it is very much they're winking at the audience. Like, the Wait, fact what? that, like, that one of the police who is interviewing people while the detective sort of observes keeps pointing out structural choices in the house and the grounds that are homages or not homages but that are allusions to or illustrations of things that happen in the deceased author's books um like they're very much winking at the idea of paying homage to specific detective fiction and things like that i guess that one of the big ones is like when they're looking at the house and saying, like, the guy practically lived on a clue board. Yes, um, yeah, they definitely do say that. We've talked a little bit before in a couple of the episodes about the way that a story can rely on our assumptions about a type of story to take shortcuts in it. You see it a lot in teen romance type things. And uh, I think our Wally episode, we talked about that a little bit, where they go, look, you know what's going on with this, right? Great. Okay. We're going to do some twists on that. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely what's going on here. And the work that they do to set it up is impressive. Over the top and on the nose, but impressive. But in some cases, they're also kind of making fun of some of those things and like sort of stretching them out, like the donut in the middle of the hole of the donut, you know, like that whole thing. It's just like really drawing it out to an absurd degree of Uh. of making fun of things that are part of the genre. Right. I mean, they literally have the final, like, showdown explanation of the whole plot that the genre is known for be a scene in the library. Mm-hmm. Like, it's known as the scene in the library scene. Mm-hmm. And they did it in the library. It's that on the nose. But right from the beginning, with like just the passing through the house of the camera with, with Fran, the maid, mm-hmm. going through to discover the body and all the things it shows you in that sort of intro scene of the knives and it shows you all of his books with his name on and things. And the uh, the hidden panel that hides his office, like the stairs yeah. up to his office. Which desperately want one of those, by the way. Yeah, that's um, pretty cool. But you were, I think you were trying to get to where she discovers the body and like drops the tray, sort of. Right, yes. Yeah, yeah even like then the end of that scene being that she's holding the tray with his breakfast and his coffee cup and everything and she in her shock, starts to drop it and catches it. And there's that classic scene that you see in so many murder mysteries where the maid finds the body and screams and drops the tray and all the coffee cups clatter and everything and break on the floor and you get the pan out shot of that to show the devastation. And instead she manages to like catch everything and it's like, whoo. And she's like, oh shit, I think. I think she actually just says like, oh shit, which pulls it into now and pulls it into the present day. 
Right. The, the fact that it's also a novelty, like a very modern looking novelty mug that says like my coffee, my house, my coffee, my coffee, rules. my rules or something like that. And uh, very much sets you up to know what to expect. Like we're going to be playing with these ideas, but we're not going to necessarily do them the way you expect. And we're also bringing it up to date. Yeah. And I think that that's well shown in the breadth of influences that it does take because I can sit here and talk about Agatha Christie all day. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wonder whether the name Harlan Thromby for the author is intended to be reminiscent of Harlan Coburn. I'd be surprised if it wasn't. I wonder if I'm missing an obvious reference with the Thromby part that I should be getting. Write me your postcards. Yeah, but Harlan can't have been an accident. Or it might just be that it sounds great when Daniel Craig says it in his weird accent. Which, I think that character is the sort of center point of that. Being such a strong, is there a nice way to say Columbo ripoff? Uh. I mean, definitely strong homage. Like, yes. strongly influenced by Columbo. But not just Columbo, because isn't, isn't Columbo more bumbling? And he's not so much bumbling, so much as he's observing. It's sort of like a... Like, there definitely are threads from, like, Sherlock in there as well, because well, it's, like, the noticing the tiny details and putting together what must have happened based on evidence and what people aren't saying and things like that. You're going with, like, Columbo puts out an air of bumblingness. I guess he does the same thing. sort of small detail observation yeah. thing. I'm not as familiar with uh, Columbo. But I don't but- think Daniel Craig comes off as bumbling. No, he doesn't. And I don't think he ever stops on his way out of the room and goes, one more thing, but now that I say that, maybe he does. Put it on the postcard. It's fine. It's the plot structure that more resembles it. Mm. Is in Columbo, you always get shown the murder. Right. Committed by the person. And then Columbo turns up and inevitably takes on the murderer as his companion in right. solving the crime. Yeah. Because he knows who did it as soon as he gets there because he's brilliant. Right. But- I do remember you explaining that to me because I've never really watched anything with Columbo in it. So yeah, the the having the murderer come with him to investigate sort of a thing so that he can kind of observe and figure out the details that he may not have already figured out or the why if he hadn't already figured that out. Yeah. Um, and is definitely reflected here. It's the the fun twist is that you had the who done it, and then when it gets to Columbo, it's very much a why they do it mm-hmm. that you're trying to work out. And with this, it's taking so many of those influences and it puts together a very sort of jumbled plot of the formulas. I'm not trying to say that the plot doesn't make sense, but if you're trying to like pan out and look at what it takes from where, mm-hmm. it's like it's taken 16 different ideas, cut them up and pasted them together. I'm like braided them together in a, in a sure. large way i think because it is very neatly interwoven uh but yeah you're very much right in terms of, of the threads being taken from various uh very specific places so you sort of start off with the initial murder mm-hmm. or the discovery of the body right and oh it's a suicide but obviously it's a murder because it's a murder mystery it's what we expect there are of course the ones the way it turns out to be a suicide and isn't that clever which of course this ends up being one of yeah, kind precisely. Of. It keeps that up all the way up to the interview with Marta mm-hmm. when you get to see from Marta's point of view what actually happened. Mm-hmm. And that's the point when the Columbo narrative really starts. It's the point when Daniel Craig has met Marta, has talked to her a little bit, knows that she did the crime because of the blood on her shoe, and or knows that she was present for the crime. Mm-hmm. Apologies. 
and we get shown the how it happened. So before they go into that, they take a moment to set up another mystery. So this is one of those bits that's patched in because they have LeBlanc say, ah, but who hired me? Mm -hmm. We're about to solve the mystery that got you in on this, but we're going to introduce another one first. It's very Mm -hmm. artfully done. So you're never like, oh, well, now I know. But it takes us very suddenly from this supporting Marta because she's the character that we're given point of view of. She's the outsider in the family, blah, 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 to understanding that she was there and is at risk of being found out for a mistake and assumed to be a murderer. So now we're supporting her because Harlan supported her. Right. right? Yeah. And because nothing she did had any malice or ill intent toward it. Yeah. Like that she's shown to consistently have her heart be in the right place and to have, if anything, accidentally potentially killed him, but also like wasn't thinking of herself in that situation, wanted to call the ambulance and do the right thing and wasn't worried about consequences to herself that it, she was sort of pushed into trying to get away with it by Harlan. Right. And through uh, concerns for other people's safety, particularly her family's safety. So at this point, the movie becomes very strange because the surface level plot is no longer a mystery. Right. It's now a thriller. Mm-hmm. How does Marta get away with this? We've still spent all this time establishing motives for several people to have killed him mm-hmm. that we now, as far as we, the viewer, know, don't matter because, because he killed himself. To save Marta from potentially going to jail and losing her nursing credentials and having her mom be deported and all that stuff. Yeah. The thriller element continues all the way through Fran's death. Yeah. Where she goes, okay, I'm done doing the thriller element of this. We need to go back to a mystery feeling. Right. And to clarify for people who may not have seen it, like Fran is the maid who discovered the body. She also figured out that someone must have killed him. And Marta receives a blackmail letter to meet somebody at a particular location at a particular time to get her to get the evidence, which would be like the talk screen or whatever. And when she goes there, she finds that Fran is there and is dying and calls an ambulance for her. But once again, as the thriller element is about to conclude and she's about to explain that, ah, he killed himself because I made this mistake, LeBlanc Mm -hmm. steps in again to completely change the tone of the movie back to the mystery that it was originally introduced as. Right. And from there, it goes very conventionally through the steps that you would see at the end of any mystery. You get the scene in the library, you get the person hauled off by the police and returned to status quo, except that the new status quo is that Marta is in charge of the house and... Mm-hmm. screw the thrombies. Yeah. Um, all the different little subplots are tied up as much as they need to be. Jamie Lee Curtis knows her husband's cheating on her. Mm-hmm. It does follow that same sort of thread of like in the course of investigating one thing, you uncover lots and lots and lots of things. Yeah. The scene of producing all those motives mm-hmm. is very much all the little pieces that apparently the police completely failed to notice because they weren't looking for it. I find it fascinating the way that it manages to play with so many bits of formulas of different genres very self-awarely to come together with something completely different. Mm-hmm. I'd like to say I am not saying that it transcends the genre. Yeah. For anyone who knows my pet peeve. It is still a mystery movie and that's good. Yeah, that's but it's a also thing. a mystery movie that would have been impossible to make without all of the, uh, those other influences having come before it. It is standing on the shoulders of giants to produce this particular interwoven narrative. 
I feel like I've kind of ruined something here because it would be fascinating to me to know what someone who had never read Agatha Christie, Raymond Chandler, seen an episode of Columbo, never read Sherlock, would think when they came to this. And we had a perfect example in you, and I've ruined it by telling you about all of these things and telling you all the references. Yeah. But even without knowing all the references, it does become very clear that even very small details aren't chosen at random, that most choices are meaningful in the construction of the film. Even like just specific word choice and decorations and things like that, a lot of it is very intentional. Like there are specific phrases that you can tell that they're probably foreshadowing just something about them because it would be weird to have chosen them otherwise like the fact that there's the statement by Harlan when he's talking about his family that they wouldn't know a a real knife from a prop knife I forget the exact wording but and then that becomes incredibly critical at the end when the person who tried to kill him tries to kill Marta and grabs a prop knife instead which and, and is- it was a thing I was waiting to happen like the entire film it is a farcical scene. If you didn't have that setup line, it would be just entirely unbelievable. Yeah. Yes, when we were watching the movie the first time, that line did come up and you turned and were like, that's going to be relevant later. Yeah. It was very annoying. Um. I mean, it's very clear. And I think there was a point at which I may even have called that the medicine was switched and she didn't actually poison him. I think you did. Yeah. And it's just, it's one of those things of like, it just seems like what probably happened. Like they've already established that so many people had a motive to kill him. Someone that, had that to kill Someone him. had to have been trying and that would be a neat way of doing it without it falling back on you. Neat as in like. Well, Ti- tidy. Yeah, Not like, exactly. hey, that's a cool way to kill someone. Yeah, exactly. That's... Neat as in, exactly, as like tidy and like efficient and intelligent, you know? I, I was going to say that, you know, we're not going to sit here and talk about cool ways to kill people on a podcast. And then I remember there's a whole industry that is exactly doing that. But, mm-hmm. um, it, and they're much m- more mystery successful fiction? than us. So maybe that's... Well, I was talking about the true crime podcast. Mm. Yeah, if we were doing a true crime podcast, we'd probably uh, be a lot more successful maybe by now. I don't know. (laughs) We'd also be very different people. We would be very different people and probably have like an 80 to 90% female audience. That's what I hear. But the prop knife comment, it's annoying that you said it. I think you were like, gave some hint of what you thought would happen. It was very close to the truth. But when he is then slitting his throat, Mm -hmm. it opens up the world for... Well, did he really slit his throat, or is there mm-hmm. some cunning thing, and he's actually still alive, or yeah? Um, because again, it's believable that Harlan went, "Okay, I've got ten minutes to live. How do I do this so that it looks like a suicide?" And my blah 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 blah. Mm-hmm. It's believable that he can go to that spot of, "Okay, how do I do it?" Because he's a mystery author. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things where if you took any one element of the story away, it would fall apart in some way or another. Mm-hmm. one does wonder what happened to his writing notebook mm. because he starts writing down notes about how to kill someone with morphine overdoses which mm-hmm. feels like then you might check that but yeah except they did do a talk screen there was nothing to find well yeah but they didn't do it because of that yeah with the motives for everybody mm-hmm. sort of thing one of the things that i think again is very fascinating about the way that this movie does work and is uniquely able to work is that it has this star-studded cast. Yeah, that context makes it more interesting as far as trying to figure out who's done what potentially. I mean, it if you've got a movie that just has 
Daniel Craig and Chris Evans in and Daniel Craig's the detective, you're probably going to get a little way in and go, well, it was probably Chris Evans because if it was the guy they pulled in from the coffee shop down the road, it wouldn't be a very good story. There's that meta element that your brain does there. But by having so many people screwed over by him who are played by such big actors, it does just leave you with that. I mean, sure, it could be Tony Collette. Mm-hmm. Jamie Lee Curtis does seem like the kind of person who might have killed her father. That came out wrong. I'm not suggesting... In the role. Look, it's much easier to remember actor names than character names. That yeah. character portrayal could have killed her father. It's very possible that someone played by Curtis, Jamie Lee Curtis. You know what I mean? Yeah, although I I don't know. I disagree with you about the character of Linda because I, I think that that was the person who was most clearly shown as having a close and loving relationship with Harlan. But anyway, like like that was the only person who really didn't seem to have a motive to kill him. You could of have. everybody else. You could have written one in halfway through the film. You could have, yeah. Like she was so built on being self-made, the threat of having that taken away, an investment pulled out, or like the truth of how she actually made her money coming out. Not that it seemed to really be a secret. It didn't seem to be a secret among the family. Sure. But it's her son that references it and no one else does. Yeah, that's true. So. The fact that he gave her the startup money for the business. Yeah, I mean, you make a a good point of, like, with multiple well-known celebrities involved in the cast, like, it does make it a little bit less obvious that the bad guy is Chris Evans, which it is. Like, it is Chris Evans. They didn't actually hide it that well, but they did at least a little bit of uh, trying to do that. But I think another interesting part of that context is the fact that in a lot of ways, I think they're also banking on the fact that Chris Evans, at this point in time, and at the point this movie came out, best known and widely known for playing the super moral Captain America Steve Rogers character who is consummate good guy. And so not only does it make people kind of surprised to see him playing a douchebag character, it gets more of a reaction from the audience. It has more of an impact. And also when people at least are going to go and see it before they've been introduced to the character at all, they're more primed to maybe think, oh, well, maybe, I mean, Chris Evans isn't the bad guy, you know? Well, there's the scene that appears in the trailer, which is Mm -hmm. actually one of his fairly early scenes in the film, despite Mm -hmm. the fact he doesn't turn up till the second hour. Yeah. Is him, like, telling everyone to eat shit. Yeah. And it's kind of lovable. It is. Because it's Captain America telling a load of people to eat shit. You know, he must have a good reason. And he kind of does. And that's part of it, too, is that the whole rest of the family, so, like, during that whole first hour before he shows up, is established to be terrible people. And so you kind of are primed to maybe give him a little bit more of the benefit of the doubt. And they do play on that. When he rescues Marta from them mobbing her after finding out that she's been left all of the fortune and going, okay, what happened? And pretending he's on her side. Like it makes you kind of wonder like maybe if he is trustworthy. I mean, even at the point at which she's like, I'm going to help you get what's coming to you. And then you're going to give me my share. Okay, so it's self-serving, but you know what? Fuck the rest of the thrombies. Because so they suck, yeah. I guess I can still support you. Again, it's the... This movie is such a strange confluence of different bits. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't think of someone else who could have played the character and really pulled it off well. 
mm-hmm. which maybe is a lack of imagination on my part. But. Yeah, I mean, there probably are people who could, but I do think that they leveraged the reputation and past performances in the public memory that Chris Evans has had. Chris Rock? Could Chris Rock do it? Maybe. He could certainly deliver the eat shit scene beautifully, I am sure. I'm thinking of that like, and then you're going to give me my cut line. That too, yeah. Like, I think he could, maybe. Yeah, anyway. But it would apparently have to be an actor called Chris. Yes, well, that's the rule. Um, All the best actors are called Chris. <laughs> that's not what this podcast's about. No, it's <laughs> definitely a tangent. Anyway, they are very much leveraging that history and like those expectations of the actor from the audience. While we were talking about the context of the film, I also want to talk a little bit about the release on Thanksgiving. And I think this will lead into the next point about like some of the social commentary because they're releasing this film that is bringing up a lot of these polarizing Thanksgiving conversations of where you have your liberal and conservative relatives arguing at the table and people trying to steer the conversation away from controversial or like high emotional topics or whatever. And this film definitely brings a lot of those front and center. A lot of these class and racist and political issues are directly and indirectly addressed in the film. And I love that they released it at Thanksgiving. Okay, that's a fair point. Going back to the earlier point, that is probably why they released it at Thanksgiving. It is a holiday movie in that way. It's just celebrating the other side of the holidays. Yeah, the reason that you kind of dread Thanksgiving (laughs) And maybe really hope that some people don't turn up. You bring up the social commentary. And that's one of the things that I really loved about this movie. And one of the things that I think the mystery genre can do very well when it wants to. Which is take a lens of what are some messed up things in our society. Mm -hmm. There's sort of two types of mystery novel in my mind. There's ones which I think are the root of a lot of criticism of the genre where they do very much enforce the status quo and it's about there's a murder and then some detectives turn up and they solve the murder and everything's okay afterwards because they solve the murder and everything goes back to normal. And the perpetrator goes to jail. Yeah. Yeah. Or is killed in the course of things. Yes. Also popular. And then there's the other kind where while you get that upset to the status quo, often in the form of murder or whatever, the end result isn't a return to normalcy, but is instead moving on to a new position where some of those problems are being addressed with varying levels of optimism, which I think is much more the camp that this falls into. From the start, we're shown a very strong divide between Marta and the Thrombies. Mm-hmm. They could have had Marta find the body or something, but the first time we see Marta is outside the house in her kitchen where. Her sister is having to watch TV in the same room as her because that's where the Wi-Fi signal is. Mm-hmm. And very much a different world to the manor where she's working. Mm-hmm. That gets very much reinforced with the way that the thrombies all interact with her mm-hmm. as sort of this exception. There's that trope of, oh, but you're one of the good ones. Yeah. Which applies to so much racist and other forms of bullshit mm-hmm. of oh, well, I know this person who doesn't conform to all these stereotypes I have of these types of people, but they're yeah, they're fine. They're Rather than the that challenging my 
absorption of those stereotypes rather than, you know, it being an impetus to question why I believe those things, if I should believe those things, where those ideas come from, I'm going to not challenge my pre-existing worldview and biases by assuming you're an exception. Right. And it's the, oh, you're part of the family. Right. Which is such a way of like exploiting people in a lot of ways. But anyway. We're going to take care of you. Mm-hmm. I think you should have been at this funeral, which everyone says they were outvoted, so it becomes very unclear who voted against her. Yeah. Um, and everyone getting her nationality wrong. Right. And that's one of the big things is her immigration status. Mm-hmm. No one really knows where she's coming from. They've all just gone, oh, yeah, she's from one of those other countries. Probably this place doesn't matter to me. I don't need to worry about the details properly, mm-hmm. but we'll speak with authority on it. And then, is it Richard, the husband of Jamie Lee Curtis's character? It depends on who you're talking about. It was like asking her to come and like be a spokesperson on, like to co-sign his racist bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're one of the, you're one of the good ones. Mm -hmm. You came in the right way, legally, you and your family. Not that he knows that at all. (laughs) And they didn't come in legally. It's referenced that her mother is undocumented and it's a whole part of the issue. And it's part of that same like, Nobody questions my immigration status in this country. It's mm-hmm. wonderful. It's because I'm white. People just assume. Mm-hmm. So you get that whole conversation during the memorial mm-hmm. where they're all together before the reading of the will and stuff, mm-hmm. where they're yelling at each other. And it's very much the Thanksgiving conversation and very much grounding itself in the real world. Mm-hmm. Alluding to the previous presidential administration without actually naming that president outright well at the time the current president right at the time that the film came out the the, the president at that time and but I think like there's... but making explicit reference to things like red hats and border walls and things like that and it's fascinating to me like what does a trump supporter that watches this film think mm-hmm. because it's not shy about it no all the people who are given those opinions are roundly mocked have sad endings in the movie Marta very much comes out on top at the end you even have in the other younger characters there's Meg who is dismissed for doing a social justice warrior degree versus the alt-right troll Nazi guy who's on social media all the time and gets accused of masturbating in the bathroom all night Mm -hmm. they're very different presentations and I can't think someone is going into that movie and going well, I think the director's really very split politically. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. That the position on social issues is very clear. Yeah, and it's not sort of written outright at the end of the movie why Marta has got to the position that she's in, where she's ended up with all of this stuff that she didn't really ask for, mm-hmm. and all these other people who are terrible people haven't got. We can go, oh, well, Marta's good and they're bad. That's why they get it. And she's up on the balcony looking down at them. It's a wonderful scene. Feels very satisfying. Mm -hmm. You're just sitting there going, yeah, but you can help Meg. Mm -hmm. Just Meg. She's the one who isn't shitty. Mm -hmm. But I think that there is a very clear message as to why she's there if you're looking at the elements, which I think you pointed out first. Yeah, well, I mean, it's very clearly shown over and over through the film that Marta is pure of heart. Like she always is trying to help people, do the best for people, bring 
joy and happiness and beauty into the world like she became a nurse to take care of people there's the the theme of the go game which is very much like sort of a micro expression of like the larger plot harlan plays go with ransom his nephew who can beat him sometimes and with marta who beats him almost all the time and it's because she's not trying to play the game to win she's trying to make a pretty picture with him playing the game and it's very much emblematic of just the way th she moves through the universe and in contrast to the way that the thrombi family moves through the universe they're trying to take as much ground as they can how you traditionally play go you're trying to conquer your opponent. You're trying to get all the stuff. You're trying to have the most. And they were already given a lot, and they're constantly trying to take more heedless of what that means for other people, which is not how Marta operates. And you see that where, like, she was going to call the ambulance and probably go to jail and lose her nursing license. And that she um, was okay with that. And her mom might have been deported, but she was willing to do that because it was in the best interest of, of Harlan. And if he'd let her do that, it would have been found that she didn't actually poison him at all and he would have been fine. But it's him also trying to play by that same game of trying to get the thing he wants. That is why he ends up committing suicide and it's Ransom trying to get what he thinks is his, what he feels entitled to, which all the thrombies seem to feel like, if I can take it, it's mine. You know, that ultimately is what brings them all down. Yeah, there's no kinship between the siblings or anything, or even like Ransom and his parents. It's all, I get what's mine, and when Ransom's going to be cut out the will, his parents like, well, this might be the best thing for you, really. Yeah, and it's uh. what none of us had the courage to do, and all that, yeah. yeah. And when Tony Collette's character, Joni, is piling on with that same stuff of like, oh, how it's probably good for you or whatever, he rightly turns back on her of saying like accusing her of mooching off the family fortune right. as well and and she has been she's been taking advantage of harlan's wealth and and in fact lying to him and taking all that fraud. was offered and more right yeah so you know you do see that with the exception of linda who seemed to play games with her father and took what he gave her and then built something else out of it everybody else is kind of money grubbing and just trying to get whatever they can yeah and I think one of the things that drives that home is Fran dies. And at first I was like a little bothered by the fact that nobody seems to care. Her crime in the piece is trying to blackmail the murderer, which is a great way in crime novels to get killed. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's what happens if you... I've never understood it as an idea. It's like, ha, I know that you kill people, so I'm going to put you in an uncomfortable position. Yeah. You already have seen that they're willing to kill people. You know what's going to happen next? Okay, cool. But her death is sort of used as this triumphant ha-ha, gotcha moment against Ransom. But there's no sort of mourning for it. And that feels a little bit weird that nobody's like, oh, wow, Fran's dead. That's, that's terrible. Except maybe Martyr a little bit. And I think it's that narratively, her crime is to be as money-grabbing as the Thrombies are. Her... Drive is entirely self-interested. Yeah. She's not like, I'm going to go and try and get some money and then help out Marta and things or anyone else. We're not given any of her personal life beyond the fact that she's kind of annoying and watches a lot of Hallmark movies. Sure. And she sees an opportunity to maybe make some money and seizes it. Yeah. I do think Marta is 
upset about Fran. Like, she's upset when she finds her ill. She's concerned, confused about why Fran would have taken morphine. Because at that point, Marta has no idea that Ransom is the one who injected her. And so she's like, oh, you know, did I miss these signs? She didn't seem to have an addiction or anything. Like, and she's very concerned the whole time, like, stays in the hospital until they need to go to try and follow up on, like, the investigation and stuff. And is the person who is the contact for the hospital like she seems genuinely concerned and she seems genuinely upset when she finds out that Fran's dead she's just hiding it from the room in much the same way that she was hiding her being upset about having thought she had killed Harlan when Harlan answers the door you know she's got her back turned and she's crying but you can't tell from the back I suspect it's very much a similar scene with that yeah and the other part of that is then that Marta always wanting to do the right thing is carried out in that she wants to do the right thing and Harlan's like, no, you have to be selfish. You have to think about yeah. your family and not my health here. Yeah. Um, and then... Play I mean, his it, game. Is think, thinking about your family selfish versus... Yeah, but it kind of yeah. goes back to the go game and also like, you know, the thing I keep talking about with Freyer and like the, the trap of an oppressed person thinking that the answer is to be the oppressor instead of being the in the subjugated yeah. position. So that's the mistake narratively that Fran makes is she's taken in this idea that you you win, you get ahead, you advance in society by exploiting any vulnerability that you can. And she sees a vulnerability in the people who are traditionally been in the position to exploit her labor and decides to turn around and exploit their vulnerability instead and turn the tables rather than having the outlook that Marta has, which is that you don't try to pull other people down like that. Yeah. Which is the final message there is when Marta finds that Fran has been hurt because of what she's done Mm -hmm. and the concealment and it's gone beyond just Harlan now. Other people are going to get hurt by this. She not only gives a full confession immediately as well as calling the ambulance, but goes and finds the evidence that no one would have found mm-hmm. and gives it to the detective yeah, to say, look, here is proof that I, I am the murderer here. Mm-hmm. And it's what ends up exonerating her. Right. It's She's not trying to get one over on anyone else. She's not trying to exploit an advantage that she has. She's trying to do what she thinks is right and what she thinks will be better for the world and better for other people. Yeah. And that's ultimately what the film is seems to be kind of driving toward in terms of like how you should behave and the sort of society we should be trying to make yeah so to go back to like one of the storytelling elements earlier we talked about a lot of how the storytelling of this works there is one point that really didn't work for me and i think it does tie into this idea of her being such a good person is that step too far with the whole vomiting on lying plot device yeah that really bothered me just like in terms of psychology and things like that like the only thing that i can think of and that like you know looking into it in a very cursory way admittedly seems to be remotely a way that that could work is if she'd experienced some sort of horrible trauma that caused that sort of response like if she had been horribly punished for lying in a really aversive way that probably involved vomiting like that I could see like that sort of conditioning 
yeah being a thing like a traumatic conditioning situation but it, like it's very fairy tale it's a princess and the pea like purity purity test, test. it was a little bullshit <laughs> it's a little bullshit and like it is clarified nope there was no inciting incident this is just how i've always been right and yeah. it's within a world where everything is maybe a stretch but very realistic it's a little too fantastical Mm-hmm. And it is that heightened element of purity that shows that she will always do the right thing. Yeah, it's too much of a plot device to me. And it does feel like a MacGuffin. Yeah. And then when it's convenient, she can push past it long enough. I mean, she still does it, but yeah, she can sort of like hold it off a little bit when a plot demands. Watching it a second time, like normally she sort of has to rush out the room and like mm-hmm. or throw up in a cup. Mm-hmm. The the end scene, she holds it for quite a lot of exposition. Yeah, it doesn't quite work. It's like the thing that doesn't really work in it, even though a lot of it hangs on that. Like the, yeah. the selective, true narrative she gives of what happened from her perspective that is selectively avoiding the parts that would implicate her is because of this and like some of the other things don't work unless she has that problem. And it's part of the Columbo setup where the interest for LeBlanc is that he knows that she was there Mm -hmm. and knows that she can't lie. Mm -hmm. But I think it could have been done without it in some... Like, I think it could have been better if they had written around that point. Yeah. I think it is also a choice that they made for conceptual reasons, as you say, to like tie into this idea of her being pure of heart, etc. But... It's kind of annoying and it kind of plays into this sort of like Madonna whore type of ideal thing that is also kind of rubbing me the wrong way with it, if that makes sense. Like, I don't want to get into that too much. That's like a whole thing. But you know what I mean? It does kind of put her as this like paragon of like feminine virtue in some ways. Yeah. Anyway, I think that's most of the main things that we wanted to talk about. Yeah. I think that the big question here is... Does this film rely too heavily on cultural awareness? You know, I don't know because I am not as literate as a lot of people who probably love this movie in terms of the various influences into it. But I think part of it drawing from so many sources might actually help it. You know, it's sort of like a random sampling of people probably have enough of the background references to get some of the inside jokes and the nods and the teases of like, aha, see, we're talking about that thing that you're familiar with. You know, it's sort of that like, like a spread shot or whatever. What's the word I'm looking for? Like, the, yeah, yeah. It's sort of like scattershot approach to making sure that your audience has something to feel like seen by, if that makes sense. As long as they're not a Trump supporter. As long as they're not a Trump supporter, in which case they'll feel very seen and very offended. Um, and that's okay. And that's totally fine. But that's you, actually the effect we go for with this podcast. Actually, no, we don't want them to feel seen. But you know what I mean? Like, I d- certainly am not f- as familiar with all the different elements that it is alluding to and, like, referencing. But there are enough that I could at least occasionally go, aha, they're doing that thing, or oh, this is a reference to that. But is that the thing where earlier I was saying that I've brought enough of these influences into you? No, I mean, I guess you're probably right in that it's... Like the Clue and all that stuff. I guess, yeah. Like most people played Clue or 
Cluedo if they were like me and growing up in the UK. And saw the Clue film, which is like its own whole phenomenon. With I its... think that's more of a cult thing. I think saying most people. <sighs> okay, fine. But it's a, it is a thing that is known about. Sure. As you say, there's plenty of references there. Most people will have some sort of touchstone for the mystery genre. And then it is an element of just there are lots of little homages for a mystery fan. Yeah, you know, even just that Sherlock Holmes has pervaded the public consciousness and storytelling sphere because of it being public domain for such a long time, and there just being so many things that are adaptations of it, et cetera, and, like, people having read it in school and et cetera. So there's some stuff that is widely enough known that even if, like me, you've never read any Sherlock Holmes novels, you get a lot of references to Sherlock Holmes. Because it's referenced in so many other things. They're mostly short stories. Okay, well, you know what I mean. Exactly. I mean, there are multiple novels. but Yeah, but exactly. Like, I don't know. I don't know if there were explicit references to The Big Sleep, and I have read that. I think the ones to The Big Sleep are much more general Mm -hmm. genre. Yeah. Because he's working with the detectives, that's... Yeah. much more closely that's less of it. well anyway. and like now that now that we're talking about this also like there's so many things that reference the same things especially for kids that i think that people will get a lot out of it because while i've never watched columbo i did watch mr magoo when i was a kid i don't think i actually really know it's what that is. basically cartoon columbo from what you've mm. said but except the the um conceit is that mr magoo no he he doesn't actually solve mysteries but he has terrible terrible eyesight and in his bumbling ends up like revealing who's committed a crime or whatever in a almost a Scooby Dooish way, but like in an also just a, like an, a more genuine bumbling way. If I remember correctly, it has been decades since I have watched a Mr. Magoo cartoon, but I remember it being weird because we used to live by Point Magoo in California and being a, a silly thing. I I could see that being weird. Yeah, I guess that it must be close enough to enough things. It's kind of like the element where um the number of things we watched where I had to turn to you and go. They're doing a reference to the Shawshank Redemption. Mm-hmm. That if something else referenced the Shawshank Redemption, there was a point at which you were like, oh, that's the thing from the right, Shawshank Redemption. Right, or The Redemption. Shining. Even though I hadn't seen The Shining, there are so many things that have referenced it that even before seeing it, I yeah. got to a point where I knew when something was referencing The Shining most of the time. And so I think that Knives Out benefits from a similar sort of saturation in media of its influences. That's an interesting idea. Yeah, I think you're probably right. If you watched Knives Out and didn't get it at all, please let us know. So I think that answers the big question. But I think the bigger question is, who is the worst member of the Thromby family? I mean, I'm leaning toward Richard. Yeah. He's like douchey on so many levels. I mean, Ransom's not great. Yeah, I mean, he did try to murder his grandfather and set somebody else up for the blame and did kill his grandfather's uh, housekeeper. And like, that's awful and he's an actual straight up murderer but i still am leaning toward richard (laughs) i was thinking that i was gonna have to say we do have to count out ransom he is the full-on murderer like let's go for Mm -hmm. the people of other but no i mean richard would be my answer as well like yeah i mean he's cheating on his wife there's the one thing and hiding it from her he tries for the money because he has signed a prenup and if she finds out and they get divorced, he is left with nothing. He tries to keep his wife from getting the last letter her father ever wrote to her because it would reveal his affair, which I don't care if it reveals your affair. If it was the last thing he wrote to his daughter before he died, 
I'm sorry, tough. Like, you're absolute shit, like, even more so if you try to keep that from getting to her. Throws um, a clearly prized baseball out a window. Which is just a petty, petty thing. I mean, that's not why he's the worst person. But also, you have to consider Ransom's his son. Yeah, he learned that shit from somewhere. Yeah, and, like, he... Oh, he learned that shit from a lot of places. He learned that shit from a lot of places. But, like, he's setting this example of being very entitled and being very exploitative of other people's money for your own, like, personal whatever. There's all of his thoughts on immigration and politics. Yeah, uh, that's a big one. I I don't even, I think I thought that was already as read because we already talked about it. Like, but yeah, he does the thing where he tries to get the person from the oppressed group that he's talking about to try and co-sign his bullshit racist crap. He announces that she's part of the family and then while doing that, like, quietly gestures a plate at her yeah that she just automatically takes from him like says yeah. a lot about the relationship he's just so entitled and so awful <laughs> he's also an idiot in yes. such a wonderfully portrayed way like those interviews where like jamie lee curtis's character's like do you really think you're gonna bait me into saying something stupid about the and then cuts to him doing saying exactly that. yeah being stupid exactly giving them the information that they're angling for that jamie lee curtis is way too smart to give up or linda is way too smart of a character to to reveal yeah he's an idiot and he's one of those people who's like so convinced of his knowledge i forget the name of the graph but it's like you think that you are right because you don't know shit about the topic yeah you know what i'm talking about dunning kruger is it dunning Dunning kruger Kruger. yeah he is very much the illustration of that effect yeah he's he's a piece of shit i mean special awards go to everyone else in the family Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um in particular walt's son yeah well Um, in particular also walt yeah again walt's son isn't getting that from nowhere and walt tries to extort marta into giving up the inheritance by threatening to get her mom deported and trying to leverage that over her of like oh well if you turn over the inheritance if you refuse it we'll make sure your mom doesn't get deported and like oh if you don't i mean getting so much money draws so much attention i mean it'd be terrible if that got out like that's what he's doing and that's pretty fucking low to be honest like it's not clear whether he's doing that on his own that might be with the backing of the whole family that might have been richard's idea we don't know like they're all kind of shitty they all sort of manipulate meg into asking marta if she's gonna refuse the inheritance yeah so it wouldn't surprise me if walt was just the person who made that threat but it was the whole family who decided to do it but he does do it and he's an idiot also his wife is so like quiet and timid in a way that like might just be that the writers sort of forgot she was there but it kind of feels like he kind of forgot she was there well no she is the one the one who's talking about like how our our culture and way of life is being yeah. threatened or whatever because it's to illustrate like you know the white women who voted for Trump basically and it's yeah. like and other characters who are slightly less shitty but also still shitty like Joni who are like oh yeah so if it was the Swiss people who we suddenly had an influx of people you know immigrating from Sweden or whatever like you'd be just as upset yeah uh, or Switzerland or whatever like like yeah no you're, it's racist is what you what you're talking yeah. about and uh, so yeah it's all of them but like so he chose someone with those very white power views Which, um to yeah. marry and have a child with and their kid is a alt-right troll because of the messages he's been growing up with which is presumably where his son's getting a lot of that as he himself seems to be so 
oblivious of everything going on in his house. I don't know. Oh, that it's probably his mom mostly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but I think. Yeah, they R- all R- suck. <laughs> R- Richard, clear winner. Rest mm-hmm. pretty close behind. Mm-hmm. Meg, still not great, but. Meg is salvageable. Yeah. Meg at least is looking at systemic issues because she's getting so much shit from the family for pursuing a SJW degree, which to me says that she's doing something like liberal studies or women's studies or sociology or something like that, something to do with equity. And that means she's at least looking at some of the systemic failings in our society and and might at least be in a place to examine some of her biases and the privilege that she's grown up with. Yeah. I think that goes a long way. Do you have any fun facts, interesting tangents? I have a couple of fun facts. Okay, go ahead. We've referenced a couple of times, I think, the ridiculous little speech about the donut with the donut hole and then the actual donut in the middle, which there's sort of two allusions to. Apparently, they did actually want to cut that speech. Like, I think Rianne Johnson was just like, "Ah, no, this isn't going to work. And Daniel Craig was like, no, we have to keep it. And like fought for that scene to exist, which I just find adorable and amazing because it's such a bizarre concept. Yeah, I love it as well because it's one of those things like I think that this happens to me a lot and I'm sure it happens to other people where like you have a weird analogy in mind, but you can't really think of any other way to explain the concept in your brain. And so you have this weird tangent that is bizarre and other people are just like, how does your brain work? And I just love it. I think it really works because you get to see that bit earlier on where he's in the car and he's just kind of thinking aloud. It's like, well, the mystery was like a donut. <laughs> yeah. And I thought we'd filled in the middle, but there's something else missing. And also then they have the visual allusion to it with the donut shaped circle of knives that Marta's head is in the middle of when she's getting the interview. Yes. That's a really nice little. Um, twist with the two with the shots of those interviews is that Mm. when all the first people are being interviewed they're all sat just off to the side of the circle of knives Mm -hmm. but for marta she's like sat very much in the middle yeah and ransom doesn't get an interview in the same way so it very much does highlight the fact that everyone else's stories are pretty peripheral hers is actually what fills in a lot of what happened but not all of it also for the sequel, they have announced some casting, and it's obviously Daniel Craig again, Janelle Monet, mm-hmm. and then three people who have been in the Marvel franchise. Interesting. Edward Norton, mm-hmm. Dave Bautista, mm-hmm. and Catherine Helm. Right, yes, I think I did know that. Oh, the Chris Evans scene that we mentioned earlier where he's saying eat shit that is so- sort of adorable in this weird way. Relatable? I don't know. Maybe adorable is the wrong word. It's It works really well. That was originally going to be him saying fuck you, which uh, they had to cut because they didn't want an R rating for the movie. Mm-hmm. But I think it, it does work a lot better yeah, for it to think, not be exactly what you'd expect. Yeah, I think that each shit works so much better in that scene than fuck you would have. It's more unexpected. It just seems more genuine in some way. I, I can't quite put my finger on it, but it I think that's better. Is that everything? I think so. Okay. As usual, you can find us on social media. If you're not listening to this on YouTube, you can listen to it there. If you're not listening to this on a podcast app, you can listen to it there. We're everywhere. 
If you enjoy the podcast, please do consider supporting us on Patreon for as little as a dollar. You can listen to our live recordings. And you also get extra bonus episodes, including bloopers and deleted scenes, and our pre-rambles, which are shorter conversations that we have beforehand about an idea or a topic that doesn't quite justify a full episode. They're often a lot more topical to the period at which they're recorded. If you enjoy the things that we do, you might also enjoy the creative writing that I do. You can find my website, faithfixclonington.com, which includes free short stories and articles that I write and links off to my work elsewhere in the world and also links to my Patreon for my creative writing that I've just relaunched. So you can go and find lots of short stories there that probably play on a lot of the same ideas that we talk about here because there's a reason that I talk about these ideas. I think that's everything for this week. Thanks for listening to Unramblings. We hope you'll join us next time. They're often a lot more topical to the period at which they're recorded, or they would be if we didn't record them two months late. Don't put that bit in. And then move all the stuff about my own self-promotion stuff, and then we'll have the fade-out music over that as if I'm being played, played off at the Oscars. Off of the- <laughs>